Welcome to Policing in the Border, a series of interviews comparing the history of policing in the United States and Canada. My name is Max Hammond. I'm the Buchanan Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of History at Queen's University. This series will explore the history of policing in the United States and Canada. Through conversations with authors of recent books on the topic of policing in Canada, the United States, and the border between, I hope to shed some historical perspective on a topic that has much contemporary interest in academic circles and with the broader public. Now, salmon fishing is not often connected with the history of policing, but on a moment's reflection, it is clear that the regulation of the fishery involves policing. Indeed, the regulation of access to fish remains a contested issue. The violence directed at Mi'kmaq fishermen in southern Nova Scotia during the summer of 2019, when they began to regulate their own livelihood fishery, illustrated that regulations lay over top a simmering history of conflict. And competition for access to and control of the abundant salmon on the West Coast leads us to a history rife with bandits, smugglers, and other lawbreakers. The issues surrounding licensing, environmental protection, and fisheries management are obviously pertinent to the history of law enforcement, and they make for a fascinating study of policing the border. In her book, The Nature of Borders, Salmon, Boundaries, and Bandits on the Salish Sea, Lisa Wadowitz has explored the history of policing salmon fishing. Starting from the indigenous peoples that fished the Salish Sea and the rivers that ran into it, she explores how the area has long been the site of an intensely managed fishery. These indigenous fishers drew upon cultural and social borders to access the rich fishing grounds in ways that were sustainable. Their understanding of the fishing developed from the nature of the salmon run and of salmon ecology. When settler colonial states drew the boundaries along the 49th parallel, they largely ignored the behavior of the salmon. As a result, their efforts to police the salmon fishery were woefully inadequate. As the canned salmon industry grew and illegal fishing escaped detection, bandits competed and stole fish from each other. Nation states were unable to enforce or create laws that could responsibly manage the salmon fishery. Overfishing, social tensions, and international mistrust were piled on to environmental devastation, and by the first quarter of the 20th century, it was clear that the fishery was in decline. In this interview, we talk about the complications of jurisdiction, dispossession, and the challenges of policing this precious resource. We talk about the challenges of accessing historical sources in the history of policing illegal activities and the frustrations and goals of writing about the histories of environmental regulation and its failures. Dr. Lisa Wadowitz is a professor at Linfield University in Oregon. She teaches U.S. environmental, Western, and Native American history, as well as the history of food production in the U.S. West. Lisa Wadowitz, thank you for coming to speak with me today about your book. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So just to start off... Explain to us where your book is set. Where is the Salish Sea? So the Salish Sea is a, a fairly recent term that has actually become an official title that British Columbia and Washington State um, have both approved usage of that refers to the contiguous waters between British Columbia and Washington State. So the Strait of Juan de Fuca, Puget Sound, and then the um, Georgia Strait. So all of these waters run into one another and create one continuous waterscape that have separate names. Um, but about 15 years ago or so, um, both of those governments decided that they would adopt, you know, officially the use of the term Salish Sea, both to honor the indigenous peoples in that area who speak straight Salish languages, um, but also to 
nod to the fact that this is actually one continuous waterscape. It's not separate bodies of water. Um, so that's the Salish Sea. You start with these um, very artistic or evocative images of the sea and the islands, you know, the, the lungs, the breathing into the, into the sea, um, the, sh the air is sharp and salty. You, you suggest that this environment is it's seductive, almost deceptively so. I got the sense you really love the place. I do, actually. It's one of my favorite places, which is why I wanted to write a book about it. My goal was to try to evoke what it's like to be in that place. And I actually have to give a lot of credit to my editor at the University of Washington Press, Marianne Kennington Lang. She kept pushing me in the introduction. She's like, do more, do more, because you have to not only engage the reader, that was one of my goals, to make it accessible, but also to really um, try to give people a sense of you know, what it's like to be there and to, to the smells and the, the, what your senses would pick up on. Um, so she really pushed me to be more descriptive. So then tell us about what, what are the fish wars? So people use the term to refer to a couple different moments in history, but the, the primary reference for it is this uh, really tense time in the 1990s that took place between Canadian fishermen and American fishermen. Um, so by that time, there was a joint uh, governing body in place to allocate the salmon between Canada and the United States. And um, as the numbers of salmon were dwindling, the catch was also going down. And so that increased tensions and competition between Canadian fishermen and American fishermen in the early 1990s. And this erupted into um, a series of events that if you hadn't really been paying attention or if you didn't know any of this earlier history that my book is about, wouldn't really make a lot of sense because we're also used to generally the United States and Canada having a pretty uh, cordial relationship. And suddenly in the 1993-94, there's talk about blockading American ships and uh, forcing Canadians or and Americans to pay duties to pass through each other's waters. And so there's a couple of years of, of some really serious um, eruption of tension um, that people call the fish wars. So, but other people use that term to refer to earlier times too, where there were conflict between the US and Canada or the fish wars also can refer to um, fishing rights activism events that took place in the United States in Washington in the 1960s and 70s. So it's a slippery term, but mostly it refers to those tensions from the 1990s. So, I mean, you could say my whole book is about the history of fish wars. Uh, and that's actually the point I think that I try to make in the conclusion that if you just look at these tense events from the 1990s, it seems like a one-off, like this weird moment. But in fact, if you read my whole book, Tensions have been building between the United States and Canada since the late 1800s. So, no, I think you're you're upset. This is not something that we can uh, isolate to one. We just had the recent example of the of the uh, Mi'kmaq and uh, commercial fishers in uh, in the Maritimes. Um, the members of the Sabaganagarik band um, have just opened a, um, a livelihood fishery. Right, and is this the the conflict was because the uh, First Nations were able to issue their own licenses. 
Yeah, non-Indigenous fishermen were um, arguing that, well, we need to sustain the, 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 the lobster stock. And these, and I will use air quotes here, Indians are not um, aware of the importance of sustainable fisheries. And down down southern Nova Scotia in Digby, but very similar issues that you're talking about: indigenous regulations, um, federal regulations, settler conflict with indigenous people, um, and um, companies are all entangled. How do current efforts of regulation match or echo older indigenous ways of action? That's, that's the conclusion of your book: indigenous modes of regulation are now being revamped or reinvented by nation states? Well, I think in the process of writing my dissertation and then the book, I remember that day that I had this aha moment where I was working on the, the conclusion and, and I was you know, describing some of the most effective uh, fishery management tactics that had it been emerging in the 1990s and into the early 2000s. And just as I sat down to write these descriptions, I just stopped writing and was like, that's what indigenous people used to do. It's just on a bigger scale, right? And um, and so that gave me that ability to, to draw those connections, right? That more discrete, um, isolated and smaller management territories, uh, really limited fishing, more sustainable, um, you know, catches and really regulating how much people take away. All these things were things that Pacific Northwest tribes did in the pre and early contact period, uh, and they worked. Um, and that is not, and I say this in the introduction, that's not to say that Indigenous people somehow were innately in tune with nature because they're Indigenous, but because they had thousands of years to figure this stuff out. Uh, and um, so I think it's really interesting that some of the current practices do seem to be hearkening back to things that, that Native peoples figured out, you know, hundreds of years ago, if not thousands of years ago. Um, and some of those things are working. But one of the things that I do talk about in the book, but just that I'm worried about just as someone who cares about the environment um, and about these fisheries, is no, ma no matter how much management you do, if the habitat isn't there, you've got a problem. And this is, I think, going to be a huge future challenge for the Pacific salmon fisheries up and down the coast, um, because we're seeing it with the orca population as well. The habitat is just not healthy. So. I mean, do you see that, I mean, because in some ways you're, you're, you're saying that we could find other forms of regulation besides international treaties. You, it seems to me you're suggesting that smaller localized controls would be more effective. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? I don't, I don't know that that would work just because of the range of this salmon in particular, right? They're, now we know how far out into the ocean that they go. Uh, I just don't think you can do it without international cooperation um, because of the, the scale huh, at which, <laughs> you know, that they're the way out there in the ocean and into international seas. So I do think it has to be an international solution 
But could there be other things that could be done at the local level? Sure. You start with the story of the Coast Salish people, this story of these children being transformed into fish and then being offered as nourishment to guests, honored guests. As you say, the, the salmon move between human and human uh, and the animal world. At the beginning of that chapter, um, I didn't. It didn't have any people, right? It was about the chapter is about fishing technology and fishing practices in the pre-contact and early contact period. So I had very few characters around which to build that chapter and the narrative arc of that chapter. And so um, I actually had lunch with a good friend of mine who's a creative writing professor at my institution and was talking to her about my frustration with how do you make a pre-contact fishing wear sound cool and interesting to people? And um, in the course of that conversation, she said, well, it seems like that relationship is your, is your character, right? And so that's why I, I built the chapter then around the relationship, right? Um, between indigenous people and salmon and the salmon people, and then tried to weave in, you know, the more like technical descriptions and how things were done, um, but always keeping the relationship as my, my focus. But it also strikes me that it's also part of the, the regulation of the relationship between humans and their environment, and particularly the salmon. I'm thinking now about the, the journal of um, Alexander Mackenzie. There's some really remarkable stories he has about encountering indigenous um, fishing practices or attempts to control that. So there are several of these fur trader journals, both people who pass through indigenous territories on their way you know, through the interior. Um, Simon Fraser, there's a couple of stories from him as well, um, where it's just fascinating, right, where they record these very clear moments where even though they can't speak each other's language, these um, European or Euro-American or Euro-Canadian fur traders clearly record that the indigenous people they encounter have very strict rules about who can interact with fish or who can even go near their fishing sites. Um, there's, a, I think, a very interesting, and I just found all these stories fascinating, the interesting story about um, an indigenous group not wanting the fur traders to come near their fishing site because they had iron, they had iron kettles and they were afraid the kettles would offend the salmon and that the salmon wouldn't come back. Um, so that's just one example. They didn't want other bones thrown into the river because they were afraid that the smell would offend their salmon. And again, that relationship was so important that there were specific practices that native peoples had to engage in in order to show respect um, and because of that fluidity between the human and animal world um, you know they had to show respect do these certain tasks in a particular kind of way like the first salmon ceremony for instance the fish had to be caught in a very specific way had to be treated in a very specific way um, in order to show respect. And if they showed disrespect, what indigenous peoples believed was that the salmon could be offended and just choose not to come back. And that would be disastrous for the uh, indigenous communities involved because they were so reliant on salmon for their food sources. I mean, it seems to me in many ways, this is a kind of a, a policing of the, of the resource. We might look at older uh, definitions of the word police that say, look, 
there were laws, there were rules, there were regulations, as, as you as you're describing here. So, if that's the case, I mean, I one of the one of the older ideas of the frontier or of the borderlands is that they were this place of, of a lack of law. I, what's your reaction to that? I think that is an interpretation that you said has prevailed for a long time, and I think is still quite um, popular and and quite um, prevalent in some in some areas of the country. Why? Oh, because I think it, it taps into, at least in the United States, this kind of American desire to project th- this kind of fantasy or romanticization of what frontier life was like, what it was like to be a mountain man, right? And to go out and conquer the wilderness and, and the quote-unquote savage peoples who were part of that. I think that that story certainly resonates in the United States very, very strongly. Um, and it's a really hard thing to get people to move away from because it's such a part of the American story, you know? Um, Turner still has some impact. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think he's forever with us, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I think it's a complete misunderstanding. It shows a misunderstanding of the actual history on the ground, right? That there's this assumption that indigenous peoples had no sense of property, that they had no sense of management, that they had no sense or any practices that we could call policing. And that's just not true. And we know that now, right? That it's just because indigenous ways of owning property or resources was different from the European or Western Judeo-Christian kind of tradition. Um, So like in the Pacific Northwest, and there's ample evidence of this in that region and in several others, right, that uh, Native peoples didn't necessarily think about property like that you owned a piece of land forevermore, but that you, maybe you as an individual or your family or your kin network had uh, proprietary rights to the resources on that property when they were at their most abundant. But the other, the rest of the year, who cares, right? The, The myth of lawlessness um, is one that actually serves settler interests. Um, and so creating reservations, creating licensing, serves colonial interests um, and to dispossess indigenous peoples. And for anybody who was traveling there, it became very quickly apparent, as you point out with these, with these journals. It's very clear, it's there. So it actually takes a quite a bit of work to actually ignore that and to be ignorant of these regulations. Exactly which tells you a lot, right, about cultural blinders that newcomers have uh, coming into these settings and just immediately projecting their own cultural assumptions onto the landscape and the people there and not bothering, even when they had clear evidence, like those fur trade journals show us, um, they'd be like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> it, it's, it's also about a civilizational project too, isn't it? How do you regulate Indians? Um, if you want to police these resources, land, fish, we're going to tie that into this story of, of uh, civilizing at the same time. Settler nations restrict indigenous mobility peoples. Um, and it's not just about the land, um, but it's about um, basically it's a, a disavowal of all, an entire cultural, entire spiritual understanding. Um, and both of those things interact. It's, it's about casting this as an unmanaged wilderness. I absolutely think that 
incoming colonizers, not only do they project their own understandings of, like, say, like property, for instance, um, or you know the proper ways of living off the land. Um, I mean, that history is so fraught, right? In the United States and Canada, both policies in both countries from early on were to try to convince indigenous peoples to become farmers, even in places where farming was just not even something that you could do successfully because it was so entrenched in their cultural assumptions that that was the first step towards actually being becoming quote unquote civilized um, and more like white people. Uh, and, and I think you see with the drawing of the border to go back to the Pacific Northwest, you have all this tension between the British in what becomes Canada and then the Americans in you know, what becomes Oregon territory and then Washington and Oregon. Um, there's a lot of tension there until they draw that border, right? And even then they don't trust each other, but they recognize, and you see this very clearly, particularly when there's conflicts like in the Indian Wars of 1855-56 in Washington territory, that Douglas actually, you know, reaches out to uh, Governor Stevens and they sort of have an understanding. They really don't want the Indians on both sides of the border to unite forces because if that happened, it would be disastrous for both the British Canadians and for the Americans south of the border. So even though they have this political divide between themselves, they also have this racial affinity that they continue to cultivate uh, because they're afraid. Now, your book has, has got a really remarkable photo essay, and I enjoyed looking at the pictures that you included. But I want to ask you about the maps, the, these fish trap maps. You found maps made by Wayne Suttles, an anthropologist who conducted interviews with the Washington and the British Columbia native peoples in the 1940s, and his maps show the most important uh, sites of native fisheries. Then you compare, or, or rather you contrast, those maps um, with a series of fish trap maps made by the Washington State Department of Fish and Game, which actually suggests the, the reality of what's on the ground. By the 1900s, uh, in fact, these commercial fish traps had entirely displaced the indigenous fishery. What can you tell us about these maps? Well, first, I'm really glad you appreciated the images, because um, I hope they help to, to illustrate the story, right? And those maps, I can't tell you how exciting a nerdy research moment that was when I found the fish trap maps. Nobody had seen those maps before. You know, that was one, one of those aha moments where it's like, wow, this tells the story, right? It's, it's such a powerful image. Um, so I appreciate that, that you took that away because those maps were just absolutely critical to chapter three. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's a complicated story. Uh, and initially, Native peoples actually do benefit from the beginnings of the, the rise of the commercial fishery. When you just have a few canneries in the area uh, and very few European or Euro-American settlers or Euro-Canadian settlers, um, there's a huge need for labor. And everybody already knows that Indigenous people are really skilled fishermen. So initially, they, many different groups actually benefit from this beginnings of the commercial fishery. But as soon as there's a larger influx of um, people of European descent coming into the area and they have more labor, right, by the early 1900s, then that's when the more discriminatory practices and hiring 
and um, purchasing salmon um, start to occur. And so native peoples get phased out of the commercial fishery by the late 1800s and early 1900s in most places. It happens unevenly, depending on which group you're talking about and where. Um, but generally speaking, you can just see the numbers and licenses that are given to native peoples versus other ethnic groups. And the picture becomes very clear on both sides of the border. What's the role of law in that process um, and law enforcement? In the dispossession? In the shift from an indigenous control over the salmon resource to a um, one that's more dominated by, by settlers, is there a role that the justice system plays in that? Yes, absolutely. And it, it's happening also, I would say, not just in like policing or the legal um, power of courts. It's definitely happening there in terms of licensing and also then increased regulations of what kind of fishing can happen and where and when. But it's also happening through the respective Indian agents on both sides of the border as well. And I think the fact that both in Canada and the United States, there is this policy of creating reservations and trying to force Native peoples to stay on those reservations. And that plays out slightly differently depending on which side of the 49th parallel you're on. But the general intent is the same. And you have then the participation of federal Indian agents who are actively trying to force Native peoples to stay in one place rather than to continue to move around the region to hunt and gather as they had prior to settler colonialism. So you have policing going on at that level too. And so they end up kind of dovetailing where you have Indian agents on reservations working with or against local law enforcement and then customs agents in an attempt to try to not only police the actions of indigenous peoples, but then the act of fishing. Is there also a story here about... um... Capital, I guess that's that's a big word I maybe to use, but is that a story about accumulation of capital or development of larger corporations? Absolutely. In fact, another big theme and story that I try to tell in the second half of the book is how as the commercial fishery becomes more and more heavily capitalized and becomes uh, more lucrative, that then you have all these tensions emerging between the kind of working class fishermen and cannery workers versus the people who are providing that capital or who are making the most profit from the rise of the commercial fishery. You see it in the types of gear that they use. How do we get to the fish traps? Why do fish traps become so important? And who are they owned by? They're owned by mostly by these very well capitalized corporations and they become bigger and more profitable as time goes on, as you move into the 1900s and 19-teens. And they're the only ones who can afford to build the traps because they're so expensive to build, but they're also super lucrative. And so they become symbols of that class divide where regular fishermen can't afford, they can't afford to build a trap. They might be employed on one as a watchman, but they can't afford that sort of gear. But they're also vulnerable. They're also out there, and people can just pick up the fish. And that's the irony, right? Is there are these incredibly lucrative... I mean, they catch thousands and thousands of fish at a time. Incredibly lucrative. 
but it also they're they're vulnerable like you said because the fish are alive inside these netted pens and and that's the beauty of the fish trap is that you can just pull out the fish when you need them but that also means that they're right there and there for the taking and that's why you have the rise of things like um, piracy how prevalent is this fish piracy it seems like it was pretty common i mean it wasn't hard to find once i started looking that was another really great research moment. It's like, this is crazy that all these guys are these local community members and everybody seemed to know who they were, <laughs> right? Which is another thing that I thought was really kind of funny, but it seems like it was quite common. And one thing I looked really, really hard for was to try and figure out like, who were these guys? Because it seemed to me if anybody had a right to engage in piracy, it was the native native peoples. But I just I the evidence for any sort of illegal or clandestine activity is just really spotty. So I found a couple of references to Native American fish pirates, but it seemed to me that the evidence that I was able to dig up anyway seemed to suggest that it was tended to be more on the on the American side, Euro-American disgruntled fishermen and on the Canadian side, because there are very few traps in Canadian waters, uh, people of various ethnicities who would mostly disgruntled Canadian fishermen, basically, coming down into American waters to steal some of that fish. So, but you, so you say this was an this was an aha moment, and I think you're right. It's, this is a particularly difficult thing to do when you're looking at the history of crime. Um, how do you get to this? How do you get to these people's stories? Well, it's tough, and it's actually funny that one of the first things I ever published um, was an article in the Pacific Historical Review, and it was based on the pirates and the bandits in the second half of the book. And one of the reviewers' reports came back and said, well, we need more statistics on the illegal activity. And I said, there isn't any. <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you track it? So it's a real challenge. What kind of sources do you have? I started with police records thinking that this would give me some insight into these, these types of illegal activities. And I first learned about piracy through newspaper articles. And there was tons at the University of British Columbia um, Special Collections at their library, where somebody very painstakingly cut out all these different newspaper articles over years and put them into these scrapbooks that had some, anything to do with salmon. It's a, just a treasure trove. And tons of articles in there about piracy. So I went to the police records on both sides of the border and found very, very little. So I went to the customs records next because I saw that both the United States and Canada had at different points in time put import and export duties on fresh salmon. And that's where I hit the jackpot. Um, and this was just happenstance that the customs agents um, a couple of them, particularly this guy, George Weber, who I quote multiple times in the book, love that guy. Because not only, not only was he like really diligent, but he was always writing letters to his superiors and always complaining about what was happening. And he was just so like frustrated at his situation. And he had the best penmanship too. His handwriting was like really clear and easy to read. And once I found his letters, that was amazing. It was such, it opened up a huge window into that world and allowed me to see, you know, what was happening. And he described these Canadian boats coming south of the border and that he knew that these American fishermen were stealing fish from this other trap. And um, 
so I just really lucked out with the customs records, which I wasn't expecting. I thought the police records would be more, you know, lucrative and, and rich. And it really was the customs records that helped me tease out what was going on with fish traps and fish pirates. You brought up the example of George Weber. Um, but I think in, you also begin chapter six with Peter Kane. Um, and these two guys are actually kind of kindred spirits in some respects, no? <laughs> dedicated. They're, they're dedicated, but very frustrated. Um, why are they so frustrated? Well, I think there's a lot going on there where many of them are just political appointees, right? They don't necessarily have any real skills on the water. Um, and I, I'd say that those two guys, Peter Kane and George Weber, were two of the, the, again, the best sources of information for me. But if you think about it, you know, the evidence is kind of skewed in this interesting way in that was every agent that worked for the U.S. Customs Bureau or for the, you know, Department of Fish and Wildlife, were they that dedicated? No. Um, but these guys come through as super dedicated just because they were the ones always writing letters. So we get this picture of these like really engaged and frustrated law enforcement officials, but they just happened to be the ones who were sitting down and recording what was going on, right? The example that I like to point to is uh, one of these agents sees something happening, something illegal, and he has to go and borrow a boat in order to like chase after these people. And that, that transaction takes time. Or like Peter Kane, who ends up, he gets on this boat where he sees this illegal activity happening and they just ignore him and take him to British Columbia. And he, has, he doesn't have a gun. So what is he supposed to do? I think you should see throughout the 19 teens, up through the 19 teens, that there are just inadequate resources being put toward policing this fishery on both sides of the border. You do see a number of commissions. What, what is the, are they effective? Are they being useful? Why do they get created? The commissions that are created, they're a recognition that this is an international problem that needs a transnational solution. They just can't come to any sort of agreement on what to do about it. Well, I like this story you have of the uh, the, uh, the Canadian-appointed commissioner, um, Edward Prince, who makes this comment about the fact that, well, Canadians should be catching as many American fish as possible because the Americans are doing all the, the overfishing. And I just picked like the choicest quotes for the book. There's so many different letters where similar things are said. And the fact that the jurisdictional authority is different on either side of the border is a huge problem. So in the, in the United States, the states have charge of fish. So it's the State Department of Fish and Wildlife that is managing the fishery, managing in quotes. And then in Canada, it's, it's the federal agency. And there are multiple conversations where the state of Washington actually is like, well, maybe we can just create a treaty with Canada, which states don't have the authority to do in the United States, and yet the state is in charge of the fishery. And the locals uh, seem to be much more uh, swayed by commercial interests rather than conservation interests. Right, right. And there is, you know, there's a lot of people who just think, ah, there's no way we could ever catch them all. They're so numerous. And you read these early descriptions of the salmon fishery on the West Coast, and it is incredible what it must have been like. So it's really hard for me as a historian when I hear 
you know, here in Oregon, a couple of years ago, there was a record run of, of salmon and the numbers were nothing compared to what the historic runs were like. So there was a real naivete there, I think, about the destructiveness of the fishing practices, but also built into the system because of the political border is not only you have competition between fishermen with different types of gear, with that class tension always exacerbating that those relationships, but then you draw the border through the middle and you create competition between Canadians and Americans that doesn't facilitate cooperation. It facilitates catching as many fish as you can before the other guy does. The, 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 the competition that's happening here between small fishermen and, and big uh, companies becomes a, a really important part of this. But are the large companies in favor of increased regulation or do they want more policing or not? They want it both ways. They want to control who gets the fish. There's a evidence that I found that was really interesting to me at the time, well, I guess it still is, of these large corporations, in fact, paying pirates to pirate from their competitors' traps. So they were, they were just as down and dirty in, in some of this, this illegal activity as the fish pirates. <laughs> they just want to have control. And so fish piracy for them is a thorn in their side. And they want officials to be able to catch these guys, but then they're not below actually turning around, paying somebody to do the exact same thing to one of their competitors. It was very much a cutthroat competition, competitive business, right? What are your hopes for this? I mean, do you think that um, increasing regulation is going to come through government? Is it going to come through local organizations? Is it going to come through um, large corporations? I know that's a big question. I don't know. As I said earlier, I do think that this has to be a transnational management approach because it is a transnational problem. So I definitely think that that's got to be part of the solution. Could there be more things done at the local level? Yes, I think that's true. But how do you get people on board, particularly when, I mean, not to, I guess, tie this to in, to too many other issues, but it's like a, an issue like climate change. How do you get people to really change the way they, they live when they have a pretty comfortable way of life? One thing that gives me hope, I guess, I think that people care about salmon in a way today that they didn't in the early 1900s. And that's actually one of the interesting things about the salmon treaty. And I use this as an example in my environmental history class all the time, is that fish aren't sexy. They were beautiful. They didn't catch people's imagination in the way that, say, birds did or baby fur seal. So it's no mistake or it's very easy to understand that some of the first international treaties to regulate transnational wildlife issues were with what people call charismatic species. It took 40 years to get a Pacific salmon treaty passed. I think people in the region in BC and Washington and Oregon see salmon as important part of their history and an important part of the ecosystem. So I do think that there's value there from an ecological standpoint, but also that they're iconic. The orcas too. These are like the two most iconic animals to represent the Pacific Northwest to the rest of the world. So I do think people care more than they used to. But after the book came out, and maybe after I got tenure, um, <laughs> and, and as I talked to more and more groups of people about the book, if I were to write it now, 
or maybe if I were a braver, untenured assistant professor, I think I would have tried to make it more of, of an advocacy piece. I think it would have been helpful for me, behooved me, I think, to talk to more wildlife biologists, to share some of the conclusions and the conclusion with scientists who are actively engaged in salmon management. We're often trained to not take a stand on a particular issue, and yet um, I kind of wish that I had. I want to thank you. One of the amazing things about the book is that it brings in so many of these different perspectives, class, indigenous history, environmental history, legal history, all of these things. And it's a, it's a really brilliant way of getting at this uh, problem. I would like to thank Kathy Buchanan for the support that has made this postdoctoral fellowship. Thank you to the History Department at Queen's University and the Nugent Fund for supporting this series. This interview was edited and produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you. <laughs>